Good morning and welcome to Upward Vision. We're glad you have chosen to join us this morning. Upward Vision is a ministry of Sherwood Oaks Christian Church in Bloomington, Indiana. Now for today's message. We're in a series called The Good Book, and this week we're taking a look at all these different themes, and we're in the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. So if you have your Bible or if you have it on your tablet or your phone, turn with me because we're going to go through part of that uh, this morning. I think that word broken is, is a sad word. It has a well, a harsh and empty sound to it. I missed our meeting. My alarm clock is broken. I dropped your great-grandmother's vase. Now the handle is broken. Here's your ring back. Our engagement is officially broken. You see, those are sad sounds. Those are disheartening moments. But that's what happens when something breaks. Each one of those statements, however, could have been greatly altered by adding a simple but genuine thought. I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? I missed the meeting, but I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? Here's your ring back. I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? You see, life is broken. Every one of us understands brokenness, and the results are much the same. We feel empty and disheartened, and we stand before God having broken trust with him through our sin, and the only recourse that we have is to humbly, repentantly come before him and say, I am so sorry, Lord. Will you please forgive me? That is the heartbeat and the theme of Psalm 51. It is one of the most beautiful expressions of remorse and regret that we find in God's word. To seek the forgiveness of God with such genuine sincerity should be the goal of every one of us in this assembly this morning. The psalmist's heart becomes an open book and we can learn much from his expression of sorrow. We're only going to take a look at the first 12 verses this morning, but I hope this week you'll read it all in its entirety. Uh, let, let's follow along here. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out all my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Those are powerful, beautiful, moving, touching words. And you say, wow, who wrote that and why? Well, David is the author, as he is the author of most of the Psalms and certainly the collector and the assembler of the Psalms. But these words reflect his godly sorrow for a terrible, life-changing 
decision he made. Now, I want to tell you that story. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the following chapters. David becomes king over Israel at the age of 30. And the chronicle of his life and reign as king covers 66 chapters of the Old Testament. Now, that's a lot of territory. This is a dominant biblical figure. As a matter of fact, his name appears 59 times in the New Testament. And his character as king becomes the standard against which all succeeding monarchs are measured. And while he was a man after God's own heart, he was not perfect. He did not win all of his battles. True, David was a warrior, warred against nations, malcontents within the kingdom, treason within his own household in the life of his son, disobedience to the Lord's commands, and of course that one big giant by the name of Goliath. But the biggest giant came in the form of a beautiful woman. When faced with lustful temptation, he surrendered in defeat. Her name? Bathsheba. It was on one of those evenings when, when David was restless. He was roaming the halls of the palace on the outside courtyard of the upper level of the palace. And he's looking out over the rooftops of the homes. And he saw a beautiful woman bathing he sent a servant to inquire about her. She, in turn, came to the palace at his request. After all, who, who would possibly find out about a one-night fling? But it wasn't too long after that one-night fling that she sends word back to the palace to David with the simple words that she was pregnant. Suddenly, the excitement of that past secret tryst becomes a panic-driven fear for the future. What in the world am I going to do, David thinks. So he concocts a plan. Her husband Uriah is with the army at the battle. And so he sends for Uriah to come home so he can give news of the battle to David. And David gets the news of how things are going at the front. And he says, you know, since you're home, why don't you just go home and spend the night with your wife? Uriah, being the noble man that he was, says, I cannot do that. All the rest of the men are at the battlefront. It would not be right for me to enjoy the company of my wife this evening while all of them are fighting for our nation. And so he slept at the door of the palace, leaving David but one recourse. Sends word to the captain of the guard. I mean, David tried everything. Tried getting him drunk. Sends word to the captain of the guard. Put Uriah at the front of the battle, then withdraw the troops knowing that the inevitable would happen, that he would fall to the enemy. And he did. And when the time of mourning was passed and a proper moment had been allowed, David marries Bathsheba. Now her pregnancy would be justified. Everybody would be fine. Nobody would be the wiser. Everything was copacetic. This was good stuff. It all worked out. God is so good with stories, and God has used storytellers all through the ages, and, and so he sends probably as much as a year later, when David has kind of let all this settle, in, and in the back of his mind, everything is just done. Nobody knows the whole story behind it. He sends the prophet Nathan. Now, there are a lot of people I want to meet when I get to heaven that are in the Bible, but, but I'll tell you, near the top of that list is a man by the name of Nathan. This man is incredible in what he does with the king. 
So Nathan, the prophet, goes before the king. The king knew him, and, and Nathan says something like this. He, he tells this story that goes sort of like this. He says, your majesty, we got a problem here in the kingdom. So there's a rich man that lives here in, in the area. He has numerous flocks and herds, but next to him is a, is a poor family. They don't have flocks and herds. As a matter of fact, they have one sheep, one lamb to be exact. And the lamb is more than, it's not livestock, your majesty. This, this lamb really is a pet. Sleeps in the arms of the children at night. Well, here's the problem. A visitor came and the, the rich man wanted to provide hospitality, as is our custom, and you know what we have to do with hospitality. But your majesty, instead of taking one of the many lambs out of his own flocks and herds, he goes down to the next door neighbor to this poor family, takes the lamb that is a pet that sleeps with the children and uses that lamb to prepare the meal. Nathan surely pauses reads in David's face what's going on. David takes the opportunity in his outrage. He declares, he says, as surely as the Lord your God lives, this man must die. I don't know how long Nathan waited. I'd have been scared spitless at that moment. And then Nathan, I think, points at him and says, you are the man. I think for the first time since all of this had transpired, David comes face to face with his sin. It, it is suddenly now in his face. God knows. God has brought this to bear. David is forced to confront his sin. His repentance is genuine. God forgives him, but the deed is not without its consequences. The baby dies. His household becomes a chaotic mess. A son rebels against his reign. Another son rapes a sister. And the sanctity of his family is never the same again. God forgives him. David writes the stirring words of Psalm 51. But he lives with the consequences of his sinful choice for the rest of his life. But here, folks, is the great news of this story. David remains a man after God's own heart. Is that, not, is that not incredible? David remains a man after God's own heart. If that isn't grace, I don't know what is. So out of, this, out of this story, out of this beautiful passage of repentance, what do we learn this morning? Well, quickly, let me highlight a few things. Temptation blinds us. Armies went out to fight in the spring of the year. They, they wintered at home, but they went out to fight. If David had been where he should have been as the warrior and the king and the leader of the army, this never would have happened. But David stayed home for whatever reason. And by staying home, he got bored and he got restless. And most temptation begins not in our actions, but in our thoughts of restlessness. David had extra time on his hands. His focus turned from the constructive to the destructive have you ever heard the old expression, an idle mind is the devil's workshop? It's true. Boredom and restlessness usually leads us to things that we ought not to do. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies when it comes to temptation. We place ourselves in vulnerable positions. In our boredom, we begin to scheme. In our restlessness, we can rationalize in our mind. You're off in a lonely motel room in a distant city. Who will know what I do or what I watch? And suddenly we succumbed to temptation's pressure and then we wondered, how did that happen? Most homes in that day and time had flat roofs. 
And so Bathsheba is out on the roof taking a bath. Was she purposely trying to entice the king? We, we don't know. I mean, after all, her husband was gone with the army. Nevertheless, David's glance became a long look, and that long look became a longing look, and that longing look became a lustful look, and that lustful look became a sinful plan. I don't know who the man was that David sent, but he was sure trying to do his king a favor. You know, in that day and time, if you wanted to identify somebody, you said, this is Joe, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, or this is Abigail, the daughter of so-and-so, the daughter of so-and-so, the daughter of so-and-so. The servant didn't say to the king, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of so-and-so, so-and-so. He said, that's Uriah's wife. It was gentle, but it was pointed. David, you're a married man. She's a married woman. This shouldn't be. I don't know what was going on in David's mind and heart or Bathsheba's mind and heart. I don't know if she was a willing accomplice. I don't know that if David lacked accountability to others. Did he feel like his relationship with God had grown cold? Were his other marriages stale and non-relational? I don't think so. I think this was a moment of passion where he let down his guard and he was controlled by his feelings instead of being controlled by his faith. David Faust wrote, he said, it should have been a no-sin situation. Instead, it became a no-win situation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a um, famous theologian and preacher in Germany, died in World War II um, in, in concentration camp, wrote in his book, Temptation. These, these are powerful words. I want you to listen to this carefully. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh, and all at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns, and it is in flames, and it makes no difference whether it's a sexual desire, or ambition, or vanity, or desire for revenge, or love of fame and power, or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Now listen. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. I don't know about you, but I have never committed a sin where I said, hey God, watch this. Have you? Who, who wants to consciously be aware of the fact that God knows what's going on in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words? It is only after the fact when our minds return to that normal flow of things that we realize that the God of heaven saw what I did, heard what I did, know what I thought. You see, it is this insidious thing that Satan does. He makes us forget about the Lord. Such is temptation's power. The contrast can be seen in the Bible's content of the story. There is one verse 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4, one verse that is devoted to the affair. The next 50 verses are devoted to the impact and the fallout of David's choice. Their lives were never the same again. That look from the balcony of the palace was the most costly view of David's life. Be ever so careful, folks. Costly decisions often begin with a casual glance. Here's another thing that comes out of this story, and that is that guilt enslaves us. Guilt is a powerful force. By definition, it is a mental obsession with the idea of having done wrong. Now, it is a good tool. 
God uses it as a reminder. If, if we didn't feel guilty, we wouldn't perhaps recognize the sin in our lives. What guilt is to the soul, pain is to the body. You touch a hot stove, you know you don't ever want to touch a hot stove again. That's what pain does for us. Guilt's the same way. It's supposed to teach us, I don't ever want to do that act again. I don't want to ever say that word or thought or expression again. And people can be sick because of their guilt. David's guilt caused panic, and that panic led to a tragic plan. And Uriah, an innocent man, lost his life because David mistakenly concluded this. David said, I've got to fix this problem. But the problem is, folks, we cannot fix our own guilt. We cannot fix our own sin. And when we try, we just make the problem worse. What do we look like when we are overwhelmed with guilt? Do you remember Charlie Brown's friend, Pigpen? He's one of my favorite characters in the comic strip, especially in the animated ones where you see, you know, in the movies. Pigpen moves and this whole big cloud of yuck just follows him everywhere he goes. I think that's how we look to God with our unforgiven sin and this guilt that just envelops us wherever we go. Guilt keeps us living in the past, and people who live in the past cannot enjoy today or look forward to tomorrow. And here's the problem. While guilt keeps us living in the past, guilt does nothing to correct the past. It just makes us miserable. It just makes every day of our life miserable. What's more, it can make you physically sick. Psychiatrists tell us that probably 70% of the people in the hospital could leave today if they knew how to resolve their guilt. 70%. I know how that feels, don't you? My, my, my brain can rationalize to a certain degree my sin, but my stomach can't. This is where it's naughty. This is where it ties me up. I know that guilt works on us in these powerful ways. But third thing is, forgiveness frees us. What is fascinating about this psalm is the picture of David's remorse. You see, no other king in that day and time would have had a problem with this. A king can have whoever and whatever he wants. That's the privilege of a king, but not David. He realizes that his action was a sin against Bathsheba, against her husband, against himself, and most of all, against God. In one moment, David broke four of the Ten Commandments, covetous, covetousness, adultery, deceit, and murder. And here's another interesting thing to me about this psalm. I don't know if you had your Bibles open when you noticed or if you were looking at your tablet, if you noticed that prior to verse 1, there's sort of an introductory statement of where this psalm comes from. This is what it says. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. David puts an introduction to the psalm about the sin. How would you like to have your dirty laundry aired for the rest of history for thousands of people to read? That's what David did here. He said, what I've done is so bad, he said, people need to learn the lesson from it. I believe David understood perhaps much better than we the importance of being honest with ourselves, honest with one another, and most of all, honest with God. We will never find freedom in God's forgiveness until we come to grips with the reality of our own sin in this world. Malcolm Muggeridge said, the most unpopular dogma in the modern mind is the dogma of sin, and yet it is also at once the most empirically verifiable. Every one of us has sinned, and we know we've sinned. However, all the 
rationalization of the world will not transfer the guilt to someone else. We like to blame those around us. Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Let me paraphrase. A sin by any other name would reek of death. So how do I get rid of my guilt? How do I get rid of my sin? How do I find forgiveness? Can I give you two practical things real quick? Here's the first one. Start with a personal moral inventory. Take an honest look inside. Get a pencil and paper. Sit down at a place by yourself with just you and the Lord and write out your sins that you're dealing with. Write down your resentments, your problems, your issues, your concerns, but take ownership of your sins. Write them down. That's what David did. David writes Psalm 51 as a response to the sin in his life. He admits it, puts it in print for us to enjoy. I think it's a really good thing to write it down. And you say, why do I write it down? Because it's too easy to trivialize my sin in my mind. And when I trivialize my sin, I also trivialize the sacrifice of Jesus for it. Why in writing? Because it forces us to be specific. Uh, why can't I just think about it? Why can't I just, you know, keep it in my mind? Because it's too easy to generalize. If I can't verbalize it and if I can't write it down, it's still pretty vague. And, and if I just say, God, I know I've blown it. Will you forgive me? That's worthless. Every one of us has blown it. We're all guilty of sin. That's too general. What we need to do is write it down, get real specific, spell it out so that we own it, so that we stop denying it so that we will face reality, so that we can come clean with God. God already knows anyway. And for goodness sakes, don't put it on social media. <laughs> this is not for Facebook, all right? When you're done writing it down and you've done your, your, your face-to-face reality check with God, burn the paper, shred the paper. I don't care what you do with it. Don't keep it and don't use social media. Last thing, seek God's forgiveness. Don't beg him. It doesn't have to be begged. Don't bargain with him. He doesn't want to bargain with you. Don't bribe him. Don't say, God, if you'll forgive me, I promise I'll do a bunch of good things. I'll teach in the nursery. I'll go to church. I'll visit the sick. I'll help with the middle school boys. I'll tithe. Well, maybe that's an, that's an okay one if, if you want to say, I'll, I'll tithe. It's kind of like the man who won the Reader's Digest sweepstakes. He went to the preacher and said, Preacher, do you think if I gave half of my money to the church, I'd go to heaven? Preacher said, it's worth a try. <laughs> now, you don't have to beg. You don't have to bribe. You don't have to bargain with God. You just have to confess. Just be honest. First John verse, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. And that's a continuing purifying us from all unrighteousness. And you say, how can he do that? Because Jesus paid a price that we could not pay. And when you own it honestly, God washes it away genuinely and begins the work of creating a clean heart in us. Maybe that's why David also wrote in Psalm 32, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me 
all my guilt is gone. Only God can heal our brokenness. This has been Upward Vision, a ministry of Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Upward Vision can be heard on this station every Sunday morning. If you would like to come and worship with us, we are located at 2700 East Rogers Road in Bloomington, Indiana, just south of the College Mall. Our service times are at 8 o'clock a.m. for a more traditional feel, 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. for a less formal and more contemporary setting. To receive a free copy of today's message or for more information about the church, go to www.socc.org or contact us via phone at 334-0206. Thanks for joining us. Continue to look to God this week as you maintain the upward vision.